Yeah, I, I kind of wrap a lot of my falconry experience around that concept of trying to figure out what's going on from the bird's perspective. What does it see? I have a little empathy for it. I mean, Simon Latham back in 1615 talked about loving your goshawk. And I really take that to heart in that I get rather unfortunately sentimentally attached to all my birds. But but on the positive side, I really care about them and I care about what's happening with them. And I try to figure out from their perspective what is it they want? What are they trying to accomplish? What is it that, what will get them to the point where they're successful game hawks? Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry's Whole Podcast and what is now the second to last episode of this series that is brought to you all by the Arizona Falconers Association. I am very happy to have been able to compile this series for them and bring their stories to the greater falconry world and getting to meet Harry McElroy and all these other amazing falconers on this trip was outstanding and I can't thank him enough for entrusting me with the task of, of bringing their stories out to you all. So. Before we jump into this episode, though, I want to do like I've done previously and give a quick shout out to one of our newest sponsors being Bobby Crafts from Poland. If you haven't had a chance to check out any of his amazing handcrafted equipment, I highly recommend you do so. You may or may not have already heard me talk about it, but I can't say enough good things about his anklets in particular. And if you haven't really had a chance to look into getting any of his really high quality stuff i highly recommend you do so whether it be the anklets that he makes with the marshall easy twist nuts sewn into them or his new hybrid jest design you really can't go wrong with any of it so his contact information is on our website at falconrytold.com give his equipment a chance if you haven't yet it'll be well worth your time and your money so this second to last episode of the Arizona Falconers Association series was recorded where the journey in Arizona kind of began, which was Kingman, Arizona. And Greg and Jamaica Smith were kind enough to help organize a lot of this and also were nice enough to host me during the handful of days that I was in Arizona. And it was nice being able to finally get a chance to meet Greg and have a conversation with him since we had already gotten a chance to record an episode with Jamaica previously. But it was great getting a chance to talk to Greg and hear some of his experiences with Cooper's Hawks and Goss Hawks and, you know, Exhibitors in general. And it was also really nice getting a chance to pick his brain about a species that hasn't been flown just a whole lot here in the States being the ornate hawk eagle and getting to hear his experiences with that particular species was was really enlightening and, and enjoyable so i appreciate greg and jamaica and their time and and everything for hosting and, and help putting all of this together and with all that being said i will go ahead and turn things over to this conversation that i had with greg smith here we go Yeah, so kind of picking up what we were talking a little bit ago, it's off the recording and stuff. It really is kind of funny just how much we let this sport and all of this just affect our day-to-day and our moods. You know, I mean, what what can you remember? Let's go ahead and start off with um, 
you know, like a thought, like what, what do you think has been one of the biggest overall, like mood affecting days that you've had good or bad? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, as far as positive mood affecting days, I think flying my goshawk on jackrabbits and we've had some really good days where she's put in some spectacular flights and and uh, you kind of get to the point you cheer for the jackrabbit. You know, you hope that make it as hard as possible and still maybe catch one. But um, that's, yeah, going out with that bird and seeing it early in the morning when the desert's beautiful and 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 the air is nice and there's not a lot of crazy people running around and you just get the desert to yourself and you're out there with your bird and you're having a great time. It's just a good day. Do you think that overall whether or not you go by yourself or not affects that at all. Do you have better days whenever you get to go out, you know, with other people and, and kind of share it as opposed to keeping it to yourself or. Yeah, I like doing that. Um, I tend to fly imprint occipiters and fly in crazy fat. So it's sometimes disappointing to take other people because they don't get to see what I get to see, which is a bird at the top of its condition totally relaxed and comfortable with me in the field. And then you add, you know, more people and they're maybe not quite as thrilled, but, um, yeah, it's a good time. I, as a sipiter people, you know, we tend to be craves loners anyway, somehow anyway. So we tend to usually hawk by ourselves, but yeah, days in the field with friends is a lot of fun. I've hawked this last year with a good local friend that you met last night, Noah. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun. He's an, a fellow goshawk nut too. So, Works out pretty well. Yeah, we kind of talked about that some last night over dinner. And as I told you guys, you know, I'm I'm pretty much have been ingrained in the exhibitor, especially particularly goshawk world, ever since I got into falconry. And it really is funny to me how exhibitor guys, particularly goshawk guys, over time develop, you know, this fondness for nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's true. I think um, there's something about the personality type that likes occipiters in the first place that they just, it tends to be a pretty good fit. So, yeah. Yeah. I uh, completely agree with you there. I've actually talked about that very thing before that, you know, I, I really think that the people that love goshawks in particular really do fit a typically a particular type of personality description. And it really is funny whenever you get to know somebody pretty well that does fly them and won't fly pretty much anything else after a while, you see similar tendencies in all of them. Yeah, I hope some of that's positive, but I was, I'm thinking about some things that I think BB wrote and some things Bodia wrote, and I can't, I'm probably going to really butcher this, but they they talk about the schizoid nature of goshawks and how they're really they're really like almost an alien life form and the closest thing you'll get to a to a alien from another planet or something their their mentality is totally different than anything that we can relate to as you know hopefully well-evolved primates and it's uh they have a unique set of personality traits i think some of us find interesting for better or worse. <laughs> sure. And, and yeah. sometimes that it seems to me, at least in the, all the different types I've seen fly. I mean, I've seen 
pure North Americans flown. I've seen North American hybrid and European hybrids flown. I've seen pure finish. Yeah, I mean, just that can sometimes also be amplified too by whether or not they're imprinted or chamber raised and all of that stuff too. And and um, yeah, they're very, very much shaped by how they are, you know, raised and trained, you know, and, and if the, <laughs> and if that, that particular type of personality that's, uh, you know, training them has unique tendencies as well, then that can definitely add to the amplification of certain things too, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Uh, most of my goshawks have been North American and I have a sample size of one finish and I'm absolutely in love with this bird. I mean, it's a really nice bird. So I will say that out of the ones that I have seen flown, one of the most dynamite ones and consistent ones I've seen flown has been a North American, pure North American female, but also the probably the calmest and most chill one I've ever seen flown has been pure finish. So I guess it really, and once again, I, I have never flown a goss. I've just, I've only ever seen a bazillion of them flown, <laughs> you know? And I, I think that, uh, I mean, just judging from observation, it just seems like, you know, there's, there's definitely a stark difference between, you know, multiple, the, the multiple types and, it really seems like <laughs> it, it, it would be so easy to either make or break certain tendencies in them too. I, I love them all. First of all, um, I like this finish because here in Arizona where we fly, it's windy a lot of the time and she's a heavy bird and she's very heavily wing loaded. So she can power upwind and overhaul jackrabbits with, spectacular ease. It looks like a guided missile. Whereas the more, the lighter North American birds seems like they struggle in the wind a little bit more. The one thing that she can't do that the North American birds do is, um, they, North American birds can make very tight corners, can, can really turn on their tail really easily where she's a speed demon. She's, she can do it, but she's not nearly as good as the North American birds at that. Yeah. Yeah, I have noticed that, I mean, as far as just pure initial burst, you know, the North American birds still are, are much better, like just right off the glove as far as speed, a lot, yeah. lot more initial speed and stuff. But it, the longer, the longer flights, you know, that go over a, a longer distance, like a lot of your jackrabbit flights definitely yeah. caters more towards the, uh, the European birds, but at least that's just what I've seen anyway. But I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're quick. Um, and, you know, the males are even quicker than the females over short distances. But for top speed, you know, size matters, I guess, and weight matters too. So, yeah. 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 Like I said, I don't know if it's something that I'm ever going to do. I almost did a while back, but it didn't end up working out with uh, the timing and, and my other life circumstances. But I don't know. You know, like I said, to each their own. I mean, but I like I said, I have noticed over the years that, I mean, once guys tend to start flying them, they don't ever tend to go back to anything else very often. Let's just put it that way. Well, I maintain my rather unnatural affection and love for Cooper socks too. So <laughs> I absolutely love them. And, you know, I, I'll probably have another one someday. I, I tend to get them and imprint them and keep them forever. The last one I had for 13 seasons. Man. And, um, 
Yeah, they're they're a lot of fun. They're they're challenging, which I, is another reason I think I find them attractive. They're just gotta figure out how they work, and they work so differently than pretty much anything else that they're a lot of fun. So, yeah, I like I said, that's something I've discussed many times with people. It's just, yeah, I, I don't know if there is ever going to truly be a one hundred percent magic formula ever discovered for for them. But, uh, I mean, so how, how many coops did you say that you've flown again throughout your... I don't know. Five or six, something like that. And five or six goshawks, I think. Yeah. As far as the coops, though, I mean, did you imprint them all or were any of them passage to? They were all imprints. All I did fly one um, haggard Sharpie just for flight conditioning when my wife was doing rehab. But I wouldn't take her low enough to hawk her. I just wanted to get her flying back on the wing, but yeah. Um, but as far as falconry birds, yeah, they, everything, all the sippers I've had have been imprints and I really like imprints. I, there's probably something wrong with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's something else I've noticed too, is you're either kind of an imprint guy or you're totally not. And, um, yeah, I've, I've done both and I definitely can, without a doubt say that I'm more of a passage yeah. <laughs> or a chamber kind of guy. Um, but the people that, that love imprinting birds, even some of the species where it may not even necessarily be that much more beneficial, you know, or there might not be that much more of a real advantage to ending up with an imprinted bird. They still love to do it anyway, just because they love the imprinting process. They love taking a, a baby, a bird from a baby stage, covering down all, all the way up to, you know, the, the adult stage and whenever, I mean, for the coops in particular, were there ever any changes like in your methodology on how you went about imprinting them, or did you pretty much stick to the same formula? Starting with the last part of your question first, I used the methods that are, you know, that are talked about by Mike McDermott and Harry McElroy primarily. I, I hesitate to call it a recipe because I think it leads people to a mechanistic approach that gets them in a lot of trouble. Mm -hmm. You just like do this 12-step plan. It'll all work out great. Well, even Mike talks about that in his book. He, you know, you have to be able to look at what's happening with the bird and figure out what's going on and adjust to it. As far as changing methods, um, I think I've become much more of a just get the bird out in the field, get it flying, teach it to look away from you for food, teach it to hunt its food in the field, starting with your lure with a, with food on it. And the whole, the whole thing about Cooper's Hawk is getting them to look away from you and not think that you're the source of all happy food on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> so if you can get them to look away from you and then if you can get them to start chasing things, they'll start catching stuff. I mean, they're, that's how they evolved. That's how the, we got where we're at with them. I, I tend not to overtrain much. I tend to just let them be birds, um, get them to the point where they're not crazy and, and, you know, make sure that they have things that are within their prey um, list to kill. Make sure you, you have prey for the bird to start with. Otherwise you're asking for a lot of trouble with a Cooper's hawk. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun though. I, they're, they're really a lot of fun and I would encourage people to, to try them. But when you do get a hold of Mike and Harry's books and work through them and it's not, 
you know, the, the people that get in trouble are the people that either take one and don't have game for it or take one and try to fly it on every other weekend or, um, treat it like their passage red tail and call it to the fists for food. And, uh, that'll, that'll cause a lot of problems with a, with an imprint of sipper. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's something I've always heard. And I mean, the other guys that I've talked to that have had a lot of success with them, which, you know, I, I haven't been very many, especially with the passage, you know, category, yeah. even more so the imprint. But as I've talked to people about several times before here on, on the podcast, it seems like that's always been one common denominator is they, they get them, you know, either taking baggies frequently, like from the early get go onset and get them out, even if they're only sometimes even like half manned, you know, not fully manned, but they know that they can be retrieved with either a, a baggie or some kind of, you know, lure or whatever, and get them going as quickly as possible so that they kind of finish being manned like while they're in the field. And that seems to be like one of the more consensus, I don't know, opinions, I guess you could say about how to be successful with them. But I mean, is that similar kind of what you, what you did then for the most part? Yeah. 100%. Yeah. That's that, that pretty much wraps it all up in a nutshell. <laughs> um, just get, get the bird to do what is due in the wild, which is start chasing things and hopefully start catching them. Yeah. Um, I tend to take them out before they're hard pen and before they can even fly and just let them hop around on the field and be birds, learn mm -hmm. how to learn how to fly, learn how to do bird stuff. Well, I mean, did you ever tame hack any of them then? I have not, um, at least during the training phase. Um, I know a lot of people have been very successful and I'm just kind of spooked about it, especially with, you know, like a finished gossock. I'd hate to turn it loose here and have a neighborhood kid blast it with a, bb gun or have it get hit by a car or something so yeah i have i have hacked that 13 year old coops out and i did that rather successfully here but yeah she returned to the wild okay yeah, <laughs> yeah and that that seems to be something that i've i've heard from people too is that even coops that they've had that have been imprinted that they eventually wanted to just even even some of the imprinted ones seem to go back to being like naturally wild you know for whatever reason, even if they don't want to end up holding on to them long term, I would consider 13 years to be long term. But yeah, <laughs> but, but so there's a lot of people that don't hold on to them for that long, right? For whatever reason, sure. Yeah, like I said, it seems like you're at least not wanting for any kind of prey base here. So I mean, particularly for for exhibitors, I mean, there's plenty of stuff that you've got here for that and. I mean, how long have you lived around this area? Have you, have you been home for the, the majority of your life, or have you just kind of lived here within the next amount of years? Or? Yeah, I moved here in 1983 and got involved in falconry in 1996. And before that, I was a uh, kind of a hardcore hunter. I was a lot younger, and I like gun hunting and hunting with dogs and stuff like that. And then my wife... Um, Got all interested at the at the early days of the internet, got all interested in falconry. And I thought, well, you know, it sounds really cool, but I don't know that I want to do it. I'll go with you and I'll support you 100%. And then she took me to a falconry meet and I saw some guy's little, great little Tearsel uh, Harrisock just smoking along after a rabbit. And I was hooked from that minute on. So uh, we kind of got in it together. Yeah. 
And as far as prey base, uh, yeah, it can be really good, can be really bad. Uh, the desert is a boom and bust prey economy. Um, when it rains, we do pretty well. And when we are in the middle of a massive drought, like we've been the last few years, it, it can be kind of bleak. Um, I hope with all the rain we got this year, we're on the upswing. Well, I mean, it seems like you're on the right track. <laughs> from, <laughs> yeah. this, just from what I've seen. And I guess I should be careful in, in you know, commenting about that because obviously I've not been here for more than three or four days. So I haven't even remotely had a chance to see in the bust, you know, what the bust cycle looks like, or really probably either what the boom cycle is either. I mean, part of what, um, I'm sure I've seen has just been kind of, uh, you know, just the locally fed <laughs> sourced kind of stuff, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, if nothing else, it seems like you at least have what it takes around here to be successful with, with exhibitors in particular. So, yeah, there's, there's enough jackrabbits for a big female goss and there's enough bunnies for a male. Caught a lot of bunnies with my, uh, with my Cooper's sock. She was a pretty, pretty big one. Um, I often flew her in the 490 range, which is pretty heavy for a Western bird. But, um, th at that weight, she, uh, she wouldn't really come to the food or anything. She'd just I'd take her out and turn her loose and let her go chase things and kill them. So, um, and she loved to hunt. That's why I like accipiters. I think they just love that they live to hunt. If you're really wanting a bird that is just one set, like tunnel vision purpose, and you know, your, your goal is to do one main thing with them each time. And you're looking the quickest way to get to, from point A to B. I definitely see the the appeal there for sure. Pretty much just go out, do your thing, get it done, and then, you know, go home. Yeah, but. that's right. A lot of our gossock hunts are pretty short. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> She's good at what she does. And she makes me look good despite, you know, the fact that, like everybody else, I'm of modest, you know, <laughs> skill and everything. I just try to do right by the bird, you know, and try to try to get inside its head and think about how is it seeing this situation? Is it getting what it needs? You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's really all we can, we can do. And I think sometimes we overthink it too. Yeah. yeah it's kind of a, I mean, I've caught myself doing that before, as I'm sure you have, you know, it, sometimes it's really easy to just overthink something so basic, especially whenever you move from one species to another and, you know, you, you're used to flying, you know, more falcons or other just, you know, either red tails or Harris's and stuff. And then you go to something like an exhibitor and you try to be successful for the first time. It's really easy to overthink whenever you're really just out to do something so simplistic as far as an overall goal. I think that's very well stated. And I think a lot of times we get in our birds way by overthinking it and injecting all our crap basically <laughs> into its life. It, it has all the instincts it needs. You just have to figure out a way to let it do it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of my falconry has a lot to do with letting it do it. You know, the I stay away from all the Eastern philosophy stuff I could talk to you about, but <laughs> it boils down to, I just, I, it, it's advanced bird watching for me. It's going out there, getting the bird out and letting it do its thing. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. 
Yeah, I mean, there's something to be said for that, I think. But yeah, I mean, everybody's got a different outlook and you know different ways to skin their own particular cat, so to speak, in that regard. But yeah, I mean, it is it, obviously that's not going to work for everybody, and it's not something a lot of people would be interested in. If you're setting up duck flights with your peregrine, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> so, but if you are just going to go out and game hawk with a bird, a harrisock or a gossock or something like that, it works pretty well. Yeah. Well, like I said, I think that's a good way to look at it. But I mean, so, I mean, as far as whenever you initially got up here and I mean, were you still having to try and, and work, you know, falconry around, uh, you know, whatever career you were at and during that point, or were you still, you know, working a lot of hours through the week and, and yeah, all that? It was rough. I mean, I, falconry was such a big part of our lives. We would try to get something in every day with, with a, a short hunt. And I think we've hawked five days a week or better pretty much most of our lives, most of our falconry lives, if you will. And it's rough. I mean, it's rough when you got to go show up at a job every day and work all day and try to get off in time to get home and get, you know, 30 minutes of light in the middle of the wintertime. But um, it also is good for you, too, I think. I'm mean, we're fortunate enough that there's still enough rural desert here that we don't have to drive two hours so we can don't have to just hawk on weekends. And uh, even when I was working, and I'm retired now since 2015, but... um. Even when I was working, we would really try to get them out most days, at least for a little while. Yeah. And so, I mean, yeah, so basically work was close enough at that point that, yeah, like you said, you, you were able to at least make something of it through the week, even if it was only, yeah, I mean, I've, I have friends that have struggled with that too. And some friends that aren't even able to, to hawk through the week, it's just weekends. And, um, I think if they were able to, they would definitely do it more. But that's cool that at least you found the right fit area-wise and also job-wise to at least make it work for, well, I mean, while you were still in a career. What what did you do, by the way? I was uh, I worked for the sheriff's office here locally for 30 years, yeah. Okay. Yeah, law enforcement is not an law enforcement, healthcare, and, and some of those careers are definitely not easy ones to work around. Yeah. <laughs> find they, free they time want around. you to work more than eight hours a day, a lot too. And they, mm-hmm. you, there's a lot to do, but, um, yeah, it's, it, it makes it more difficult, but you know, this falconry thing gets in your blood somehow. And we we're talking about it, <laughs> you know, being a real, a strong passion for us that get involved in it. And, um, a lot of, you know, you kind of find a way, you know, yeah, yeah, very much. It's very much a um, where there's a will, there's a way type of thing, and you know, you get out of it what you put into it. I mean, that's been said many times as well. But yeah, uh, you can always annoy your boss. There's always that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there is always that. And well, I and, you know, in your situation, you're lucky that your spouse is into it too, because not only a lot of times do a lot of us have to annoy our employers but we also have to annoy our spouses too. yeah that's <laughs> so. right that's exactly right too i've seen it uh i've seen it become a problem at times with other <laughs> relationships right yeah so i guess you're another one of those lucky few i am a lucky guy yeah i have a wife that she's a talented falconer and very supportive when did you guys decide to start doing the um you know like the the hawk walk education type stuff 
Um, that's really my wife's gig, and she got involved in that about, I want to say, a year and a half ago, something like that. And she's licensed through friends down in Tucson. Mm-hmm. And she's been going out, taking uh, members of the public out and, and letting them experience, like, demonstration falconry. That's really all it is. And people absolutely love it. They're absolutely um, fascinated by interaction with a bird and getting us to see a bird fly around free and getting all their questions answered. And it's a really, it's a great outreach program for falconry. I think we're, I think we're creating good feelings on the part of the public that goes to those. Not a lot, but there's some. Yeah. I've heard that same sentiment kind of expressed by some of the other, like, um, bird of prey school, whatever education type places. I mean, I mean, I, it seems like there's definitely been more spring up, you know, over the years and stuff. But so basically it's, it's mainly, you know, Jamaica that does most of that. Yeah. And, and you just, you know, or they're fine. I hold down support. the Ford yeah. home and write, <laughs> yeah, support her however she needs it. Right. Well, I mean, I, I guess one cool byproduct of that, though, is you guys have a, a neat assortment of birds around, though. I yeah. Mean, yeah, you know, like I said, it's it's not every house that you walk into and you look over in the corner and there's a screech owl and then you look outside <laughs> and there's like, you know, also other cool birds like ornate hockey girls, yeah, you know, other yeah. stuff. And, I mean, what have been some of your experiences with some of these other species that, that people really don't mess with that often or have a lot of experience with? Sure. Um, well, the screech owl is part of the... Uh, falconry school program the outreach program if you will along with jamaica's harrisock um the ornate hockey eagle is actually my falconry bird um he's a great little bird i'm still trying to figure him out he's really a challenge because while i uh, have a lot of experience with occipiters just like you know you can't compare an imprint occipiter to a passage red tail um, there wasn't a lot of crossover in raising an ornate hockey goal from a chick to, I think he's, he'll be his fifth year this season. Yeah. And um, he's a great little bird. He's, he's really beautiful. Um, they're very, very slow to mature. I understand they stay with their parents between one and maybe three years. I don't know. Like two might be an average. I'm not sure. And I don't think anybody else is sure. Um, the, Falconers I've talked to in South America have the same experience I have with it. Of course, uh, I have a sample size of one. (laughs) Um, But the first year with them, they don't do a lot. They don't don't even want to really fly. They can fly just fine, but they're pretty content to just hang out. And if you take them out in the field, they'll ride around in the fist and they'll fly down and look at bugs and check things out and play with rocks and and then the second year they'll start chasing things, and the third year they'll turn into decent hunters. And uh, he's pretty fun. He's got uh, a combination of flight styles between a red tail and a tiersel goshawk, so he can really pump and really go fast and make tight turns like you would expect of a forest eagle. Um, but he's also got this great fold up wing over like a good red tail strike too on game. So it's a lot of fun to watch. And uh, he's been a real learning experience and I've, I've enjoyed handling him. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that very many people have, you know, a lot of even a, a sample size of one with. Yeah, so. that's true. Well, I've 
fortunate that I have a friend that has entrusted me with this bird. Basically, it's my falconry bird and his breeding bird. So we're hoping down the road to produce a bunch of ornate hockey goals that people could experience, um, they could work with and hopefully bring the price down. So they're within reach of, you know, the, the average uh, falconer. <laughs> Something tells me that that even when they're brought down in price a little bit, though, it still might end up being a a little bit <laughs> a little bit too pricey for some for for most. But I'm sure, that, like you said, where there's where there's a will, there's a way with them. You yeah. Know, I mean, as as you know, the market goes for pretty much everything. You know, it's always a supply and demand issue. So people buy know. those white goshawks, and I think we can maybe even do a little bit better than that. So. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. We'll see what happens. <laughs> well, I mean, not, and also it's not like necessarily the main motivation is, is money in it all, you know, right. I'm sure also, but yeah, I mean, it really is kind of interesting to see how some of these, these species that come from other countries and areas end up doing here in the States. I mean, I, I do like hearing stories about all that because, you know, really you just never really know until there is a much larger you know, sample size. And yeah. I mean, to my knowledge, there's still not very, you know, hasn't been that many people other than, you know, just a handful. It's really flown them. My friend, I, he had a female ornate hawk eagle for some years. He was killed by a rattlesnake, unfortunately, but I saw that thing fly and um, she was absolutely stunning. I mean, flying after jackrabbits, she made it look incredibly easy. Think about a a giant goshawk that weighs, you know, four pounds. And um, with that kind of speed and acceleration and the ability to turn reasonably tightly, she made jackrabbits look almost too easy. Hmm. And um, it was a beautiful bird that was a lot of fun to watch fly. Mine's a little male. He's a pretty small little guy. So he catches jackrabbit or he catches cottontails and uh, he's caught one jackrabbit kind of Mostly trying to keep them away from those because I don't want them to get hurt. But yeah, I know there's probably some other exhibitor guys that are probably you know salivating at the thought a little bit. But I don't know. Like also, most of the exhibitor guys that I know too just aren't overly patient yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways too. So I'm not really sure if uh, you know some of the people I know would would be willing to you know be patient for the three years that it would really take to have one kind of come into its own a little bit, but. I mean, yeah, like you said, where there's, once again, where there's a will, there's a way. I mean, it's worked out for you, it sounds like, so. Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges. They're, they're going to be spectacular game hawks and great, I mean, it's just a beautiful bird. Um, I think the right answer might be, and again, this is, you know, I'm not a breeder, so I don't know, but. If they could, if the breeder could hang on to them and keep them with their parents and basically chamber raise them for, or even take them out of their parents and chamber raise them um, for like two years, hmm. I think they would be spectacular because they would have matured and grown up and be ready to learn. Whereas the first year, I didn't teach them anything other than to be handled and be tame. Yeah, there might be something to be said for that. I, I can only imagine you know, what the extra cost would be then, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure that's probably going to be a deterrent for some people to be willing to, to do that. You know, I mean, just kind of keeping extra, 
your birds on hand for another couple of years and having to feed them and stuff. And yeah, it might be a little bit of a <laughs> deterrent for that method too, but it would be cool to see what that would produce. Yeah. That is the problem. I mean, we're trying to bring the cost down so they're not, I mean, stratospherically priced. Mm -hmm. But if you had to hang on to the bird for a couple of years, it drives the cost back up. I was going to so say, yeah, it almost kind of evens really itself back out. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> we'll see what happens. I mean, I'm hoping we can be successful and make a bunch of them. So, yeah. Well, it sounds awesome. I mean, and before we change the subject to something else, I mean, other than just, you know, standard types of, you know, training and, and, um, you know, introducing him to kind of field normal field type habits and things. I mean, was there anything different in particular that you did whenever you were raising yours that was, I'm, I'm any different than like how you would raise, you know, goshawks or anything as far as, you know, imprinting and stuff or, or did you do anything different as far as going about raising this bird was his own like thing? Yeah. Um, I, well, I, we all try to make work what we, what's within our skill set, right? So mm -hmm. we always try the things that have worked for us before. And, uh, sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Anyway, I tried to raise him like a goshawk and I would say that overall that was generally successful, except that when he hard pinned, there was absolutely no change in behavior and no interest in quarry. I mean, he could be quite hungry and you could, you know, have food at and he was kind of indifferent about it. And and the same with game animals. He even once he was entered on, he would just be pretty lackadaisical about it. Um, he didn't seem to have that prey drive that, you know, most normal North American uh, raptors would have. Um, for the first year. And then the second year that kind of turned on, uh, I never had any, um, aggression problems with them. I was careful not to feed them on the lure or call them to the fists for a while. And then I realized that really wasn't an issue. I, I could do those things. They didn't care. He wasn't, he's not grabby at all. He expresses an, his annoyance with me by biting me. And he's got a big old chompy beak that can really draw blood, <laughs> but he doesn't foot me ever. I mean, he'll, if you try to pick him up on your hand, he'll hold on a little too tightly, but he's not, uh, he's not footy and he's not grabby. He's not aggressive at all. Hmm. Um, and so dealing with aggression problems in quotes, like you would think about with, you know, Cooper socks and some goshawks and stuff, that's not at all been, a challenge. The challenge was teaching him, making sure he learned to fly well. And I used a lure machine for that primarily. Um, I still fly him on the lure machine quite a bit, um, partly to keep him in good shape and partly because we didn't have a lot of rabbits last year and partly because, um, you know, no one's going to give me another one of these things. So <laughs> I don't want anything bad to happen to him. And only recently has he withdrawn here he is four years old. Only recently has he started to withdraw like he would normally see with a Cooper sock or a Goss sock right around a hard painting. Well, he was dog tame, had no idea that he could be eaten by anything until quite recently when he'd start doing things like flaring at my dogs and being careful about stuff and, you know, paying attention to other raptors and things like that. So. 
It's all very fascinating. And like I said, I find that just so interesting because they are so, you know, amazing looking, such amazing looking birds. And like we were just talking about, I'm not sure if I'll ever be able to afford to take that much of a plunge into, into a, a single bird. And it would probably scare me to death to do so just because of the abundance of other species, like, you know, just amount of red tails and stuff that we have around and everything. But yeah, but yeah, I can, I can totally understand why you want to be conservative because like you said, you know, <laughs> the odds of just being gifted or semi gifted, another one would be, yeah, not probably very high. <laughs> yeah. Probably approaching zero. I've, <laughs> a couple of experience I've had, I've flown him on the lure machine and he'd just fly off 50 yards in the desert and a red tail, you know, set its wings and be headed right for him. And he was totally oblivious. Mm-hmm. And I'd have to run over there and save him. I had a, another close call when he he's he's desperate to soar. Apparently, this is something they do in their native habitat once a day in the in the late morning. And he really wants to soar. And uh, I won't let him because I'm afraid of bad things happening to him. <laughs> but I had to save him from a red tail when he took off at a soar one time and then landed on a hillside when he was forced to the ground. And Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine how you that would feel. That's, I mean, I, that's why I have gray hair. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, what little hair I have left would probably be gone after that too. Yeah. I would never have to worry about even shaving again. You know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I know what it's, it's like to almost come close to losing just, you know, a bird like a Kestrel, let alone something like a ornate hockey. <laughs> yeah. But either way, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm always fascinated by people's experiences with species that, I know I don't see very often or even get a chance to be around very often. So it's been kind of neat being here and, and yeah. being able to pick you and Jamaica's and, and even Lauren's, you know, brain about, you know, some of these different birds that obviously I'll never, <laughs> you know, some, some of which I'll never get to see in Southern Indiana unless, well, sure. you know, <laughs> well, you ought to come out and, and go hawking with us during the hawking season. We do have a lot of fun and we're very, very active. Probably unhealthily so, but <laughs> it does uh, get in the blood, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's there's such a long list of of people that I've met and yeah. would love to get out and do that with, and I, I'll definitely add you all to the list for sure. sure. I mean, plus it would give me an excuse to come back to Arizona, which I love. Yeah. Um, but, um, well, I mean, so as far as you know, some of your, your favorite experiences out in the field, you know, you've already kind of touched on kind of how you got interested and discovered, you know, falconry and, and, um, you know, I've told a kind of a couple stories already, but I mean, what, what have been some of your most memorable, you know, otherwise memorable flights or, you know, hunting experiences with, with some of these birds? I mean, overall, I'm getting the impression that the, the goshawk has been your overall favorite bird to fly, but I mean, what have been some of your favorite stories or experiences that, that come to mind for you? Yeah. That goshawk was, uh, always color of my retirement birds. I bought her shortly after I retired and I plan on keeping her in forever and everything. Um, I've had a lot of fun with Cooper socks over the years. And I've, I remember a, a hunt with a little tearsel I had for some years called willow. I called him willow. And, um, we were hawking this little Canyon and, um, we were hawking quail and, you know, 
Cooper Sox, everybody wants them to catch quail up in the air, but they don't very often because they're really ground birds. I mean, they, they're not all that aerial. They like to catch things on the ground. And this little guy, the quail flushed at my feet and he caught it within 20 feet and came to the ground. It was just a lot of fun. That was, that was great. It doesn't happen all the time. It doesn't, probably most of the quail I've caught with Cooper Sox were caught on the ground or after a short flight and taken out of the air about two feet high. But this was just like classic, you know, sparrowhawk or goshawk in Europe kind of story. It was a lot of fun. Um, I've also a lot of good experiences in the field with my last female. I had my last Cooper Sock female. And um, I took a bunch of friends out with her from uh, Tucson, and we had a great hunt. I mean, she she performed really well and one thing I liked about her is um, I always hunted with her without a dog because she hated dogs. And she, I think we just, we talked a little bit about birds that attack dogs a bit before we got started. But she, uh, she was taught to hate dogs by a dog I had that, you know, would do things like go and retrieve the rabbit she caught to hand and everything. Anyway, so I hawked without dogs. She would, I just turn her loose. And my method with her is just turn her loose and follow her. And we were out with our friends from Tucson. I just let her sit. And she'd just fly 200 yards. And she'd sit there and look and listen. And she'd fly a couple more times. The next thing you know, she's in the covey of quail. She could find them just by watching them run on the ground and listening to the little feeding calls back and forth. And we had a great hunt with her with that. That was a lot of fun with the friends from Tucson. And one more, um, I've only caught one duck with my goshawk. We're not in a duck hawking place. And uh, because of the fact that uh, industrial agriculture has taken over a lot of our valley, a lot of the uh, duck ponds, or they're actually stock tanks, I used to jump shoot back in my gun hunting days are gone. But we did a great hunt with her, and she managed to catch one duck <laughs> before I think that that pond went dry. Then afterwards, so yeah, we had a good time with that. What a, a what good species flight. of duck was it? Out of curiosity, it was it? a gadwall. Yeah, nice, yeah, kind of a common duck, but yeah, yeah, that's that's still something that I I need to tap into at some point. I guess in some ways I've kind of become a little bit of a late bloomer myself. You know, there's lots of guys in my area that you know, started off with squirrels and things. And I'm just now, you know, just now gotten into that. And, and yeah. all of my buddies were, you know, hunting ducks and stuff too. And, and, um, you know, whatever circumstance is something I wanted to try a lot sooner also, but just haven't been able to. And, you know, of course, with the last couple of years and the whole avian influenza thing, it's kind of been, you know, a little bit of a hindrance as well, but, uh, no, man, that's, that's cool. Like I said, I mean, I, I really appreciate you, you know, being open so far with your, even though it is a litmus, you know, test size of, of one in a couple of, these, <laughs> you know, circumstances, yeah. you know, with like, you know, the ornate and, and stuff like that. I mean, it's still really cool for people to be able to hear, you know, kind of what, you know, certain experiences with some of these different species are, because you just, like I said, I mean, being able to obtain, obtain some of these right now is just extremely difficult, you know? So, yeah, they're, I would say that he's not a difficult bird at all, other than the sorting through the unknown. 
They're mm-hmm. so puzzling and that they take so long to mature. And until I got my brain wrapped around that, I had a really hard time. But he's not a difficult bird to train or handle any more than, say, a, um, well, I don't know, a captive bird, Harrisock or, or a, you know, a Gossock or something like that. They're not, they're not difficult. They're not like a Cooper sock. I'd, let's put it that way. They're, <laughs> um, but they're very slow to mature. And they're very uh, slow to enter to game in that, you know, they're, they're looking for a parent to take care of them for a year or so. So, yeah. Well, I mean, just out of curiosity before we kind of conclude here shortly, I mean, overall though, do you think that if you can even qualify it as, as like a personal success or whatever, I mean, do you think that so far being able to navigate kind of the unknown like that has been one of your, better accomplishments for yourself, you think, or, or like, you know, one of your personal, you know, like higher up success stories, do you think so far in your falconry or? Yeah, I, I, I do think that it takes someone that can look at what's going on with the bird and try to figure out from its perspective, get in its head and figure out what does it see here? Um, you know, if you got a brand new Cooper sock, for example, and, all it knows is you. You took it as a 13-day-old chick. All it knows is you. All it, you're his parent as far as it's concerned. And you were the sole source of food in the entire world. And all it does is look at you and say, I got to get this big ape to feed me some more because I'm really hungry right now. <laughs> um, you got to figure out a way to, to solve that problem. And the way you solve it is like get it to look away from you for food. Get it to hunt or it's lure in the, in your backyard or whatever. So back to the ornate. Yeah. It's been a challenge simply because it's frustrating. It's, it takes so slow to develop. Um, but once you kind of figure out that that's the significant limitation, the other things have kind of fallen into place. I wouldn't say it's been a difficult bird or required a tremendous amount of skill other than you know, making sure you keep the damn thing alive. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and and I didn't even necessarily, not even maybe referencing, you know, terms of difficulty, but just mm-hmm. terms of like being able to kind of conquer something, so to speak, that there's just really not any reference. I mean, not very much hardly at all reference for that's out there. And, and just kind of being able, even though you found out that it really, wasn't as difficult maybe as, as what you might've originally thought it would be, but just kind of thinking to yourself, man, like, you know, I'm, I'm, I really think this is probably one of the coolest things I've been able to, to figure out, you know? Yeah. He's, he's super cool. And I've had a great time with them and I've had a great time learning with them mm-hmm. and doing things like talking to falconers in South America that I ever probably wouldn't have met otherwise that have flown them successfully and learning from, their experiences yeah it's been a lot of fun and um it has it's been challenging and it's been it's been rewarding too yeah i'm like i said i can only imagine as probably would be one of my you know something like that is is probably would be right up there with something i would probably rank you know (laughs) very high on on my list as well you know but uh yeah but yeah no well that's that's awesome stuff well i mean before we we end though I want to um, to do like, you know, we've been doing with all these other Falconers um, the last, I don't even know how many episodes now, but, you know, I mean, just overall, would you 
say that, you know, kind of being able to look at that, you know, perspective or be able to, to look at things from kind of that bird's perspective and stuff. I mean, would that rank kind of towards the top of some of your best falconry advice that you can give to people? Or, or is there any other kind of sentiment or piece of advice that you think would be important to, to pass on to people? Or would that be up there, you think? Yeah, I, I kind of wrap a lot of my falconry experience around that concept of trying to figure out what's going on from the bird's perspective. What does it see? I have a little empathy for it. I mean, Simon Latham back in 1615 talked about loving your goshawk. And I really take that to heart in that I get unfortunately sentimentally attached to all my birds. But <laughs> but on the positive side, I really care about them and I care about what's happening with them. And I try to figure out from their perspective, what is it they want? What are they trying to accomplish? What is it that, what will get them to the point where they're successful game hawks? And a lot of that is just like providing the right circumstances and getting out of the way and, and doing that interactive bird watching I talked about a while back. Um, it doesn't work for everybody and not everybody's going to think that's a great plan. A lot of people want to be more involved. Um, but I think that letting a bird figure out what to do and, you know, letting it, um, act on its instincts and use all those skills that are kind of innately built in it, the ability to learn what game is and what game looks like and what it behaves like and, how it flies or runs and what it does to get away. Um, that's been a real positive part of my falconry experience, just watching the bird do it, be, do bird stuff. Well, I think that's, like I said, that's probably something that, I mean, a lot of us sometimes probably forget in a way. I mean, it seems so simple and seems like such a simple concept to remember sometimes, but sometimes, as you know, whenever you can, reach that point of frustration at times or sometimes just forget that at its roots all this stuff is very kind of just rudimentary <laughs> as far as a concept goes you know i mean it, it can be difficult to remember something so simple sometimes i think it really is a challenge for all of us i think and it part of it is just because of the way we live our lives so we're all generally busy and we have jobs to go to and we have limited amount of time and and only so much attention span. And then we like you go home, you grab your bird, you take it out to a field that you hope has some game in it, and you expect it to be a, a spectacular performer. And maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't. But a lot of the times, um, we're doing it. We're doing all that for us, and we're disappointed when we don't get the results we want. Whereas the bird is trying to do the things that instinct has provided for it it's trying to hunt the quarry at things it can catch it's trying to do the things that it would normally do in the wild and that's the kind of thing i'm trying to get um and trying to you know back my personality and my ego back out of it and just be an observer mm -hmm. try to get to the point I, where i'm an observer and i'm not always successful you know <laughs> well that's i mean yeah we're, we're not always successful 100 percent of the time none of us sure. are yeah, and that's just part of what goes into it as well. And, right. um, but yeah, no, I think that's some great stuff. And, um, is there anything else you'd like to share before we end up getting, what is it? Pizza or something here in a little bit, or I think there's going to be pizza. No, I appreciate <laughs> your opportunity to let me talk and, and, um, uh, this has been a lot of fun and I, I appreciate the 
opportunity. I'm looking forward to listening to some of your podcasts and, and having <laughs> it been good talking to you. Yeah, for sure. It's been great actually getting a chance to uh, meet you in, in Jamaica in person. And um, I'm very appreciative and I, I appreciate you all, you know, contacting me to, to help you guys, you know, do this series. So yeah, well, it's great to meet you and have you here. And I hope we come out during hawking season so we can have some fun. Well, yeah. And if you're ever um, swinging east at all, you all are more than welcome to to come and, and chase bunnies and or squirrels or whatever, you know, with us too sometimes. Sounds good. Awesome, man. Look all forward right. to it. Cool. Well, let's go have a drink or something. All right. Thank all right. you. Take Thanks. care.